Welcome to the Gin Ignite podcast. Whether you want to party or stay in, gin will ignite. This is the weekly show coming to you on a Friday, ready for the weekend, where we go through all things gin. If you want to find more out more information, catch me on Instagram at Gin Ignite or alternatively go to the website www.ginignite.com. Welcome to the show and let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to episode eight. Today I'm joined by Vanessa to talk all about the art of mixology. More about that a little bit later on. The one thing I would love to say to you is please support pubs and restaurants around the world. I sort of mentioned the UK, but I want you to support them around the world, wherever you are. If you, however, would still like to stay in, I got to be honest, I quite like staying in too then please drink gin and support your local distilleries or distilleries all around the world. But please drink responsibly. This week's gin recommendation is Martin Miller's Gin. I've talked about Martin Miller's before. It is probably my joint favourite, along with Pitwheel's original dry for a London dry gin. They ship the Icelandic water. I'm not quite sure how. I'd love to find out. So if you're listening, Martin Miller, please get in touch. And uh, I'd love to have you on the show to let us know how you do this. And they distill that Icelandic water in the UK to produce the Martin Miller gin. Now, when I first uh, tried this, I tried the nose in the bottle and it kind of got a vague similarity to sort of smelling Cajun very very mildly obviously with a little bit of sort of alcohol it's sort of a really weird thing then I put it into the glass and I've got to be honest the nose is pretty much like any other London dry gin the taste as you can imagine is very very dry but it's sort of really really smooth and it's kind of got a sweet finish to it I think that is to do with the sort of Icelandic water it's just very very smooth As you can imagine, I would pair this with a Mediterranean tonic, but it would be quite home with a standard or an elderflower tonic. I'm not sure I'd go any sort of higher depth than that. You could probably go with a cucumber tonic. Actually, I think that would be really nice. Nice sort of summertime drinks. I love, love it with a dry martini. I think it's absolutely amazing. It feels really, really decadent to do it, but it's absolutely fabulous. And I think it could be part of a cocktail easily. Um, Obviously, I should have really thought about that when I was uh, talking to Vanessa and asked her, but I think you have to be a bit careful not to sort of overpower it. So today on the Gin Ignite podcast, we're joined by Vanessa. I'm not really sure where to start with my introduction. Vanessa was diagnosed with lupus at 15 and got got told she'd never play sport again. She's gone to prove this diagnosis wrong, like many other things in her life. And when I started seeing on posts online, I was a bit confused because sometimes there were dumbbells and fitness and upside downness, and sometimes there were some amazing cocktails. Not only that, she's been doing work for a number of people designing their cocktail menus. Oh, and by the way, she's studying from MSc in psychologies on the side. Her followers on Instagram are either finding out the latest fitness exploit by her or wanting to know what's coming up in her series of cocktails. 
the most recent one being with Stonewall and previously with Manhattan Cocktails. So before I start on mixology, which obviously is what this episode's all about, and trying to work out how on earth, Vanessa, you have time to do all these other things, tell me about being the ambassador or being one of the ambassadors for the Hibs Lupus Trust. Well, I to rewind a little bit, I was diagnosed in 2006. And at that time, there weren't really very many charities about they kind of dealt with the younger age diagnosis, like for me at the age of 15 um, and the average age is being, you know, you look at 30s and later for a lupus diagnosis. So I was I felt very much alone. Right. And so once the Libs, the Hibs Lupus Trust was founded in 2011, I kind of crossed paths with John and Vicky Hibbs, who who basically created the Hibs Lupus Trust and we connected and ever since then I've when I lived in the US there was a much more of a limit on what I could do for them and um, now being back in the UK I'm able to participate more in terms of like we were trying to raise awareness in April and May on World Lupus Day and um, just throughout the year doing what we can do obviously uh, when COVID's not a thing (laughs) to try and bring people's attention to them and and what they do and how they support people with lupus across the age groups rather than, you know, concentrating on one age group or perhaps research-based. So they're much more more of a community-directed charity, which I think is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds sounds amazing. I I think you've actually answered all the questions that I had. So uh, (laughs) that was pretty, that was pretty impressive. That's obviously why you're an ambassador. But how much time does it take up? Um, honestly, honestly, not a lot. I I think that there's definitely more I could do. Um, you know, unfortunately, this year with COVID, the big 10K run that was actually going to be in London this year um, got cancelled. And so we, you know, there have been fundraising efforts and I've I've been in the loop and I've done what I can to to bring attention to it and fundraise myself um hopefully next year and perhaps later on this year we can we can do more to get people together it just obviously depends on on what's going on but but john and vicky are are really incredible people and what they're doing is is so valuable for so many people so they definitely deserve all the spotlight absolutely and and certainly i'll be putting um information to how to get to the the website and look at the hibs uh, lupus trust in the show notes so you've i mean as i said in my introduction you've done so much um i i get tired i think sometimes thinking about all <laughs> the things that you do really um you seem to turn your hand to sort of anything so how did you get into mixology well oh that's a good question so back when i was at university um you know, on the side, you would you would come up with things to do. And I ended up basically basically being like a cart girl on a golf course. So I would go around, offer people drinks and, you know, snacks and everything. And of course, um, you know, a lot of golfers like Bloody Marys. So it kind of led me into, <laughs> do you want a Bloody Mary? And, um, you know, familiarize me primarily with vodka and um and beers and and wine and certainly 
they seem to me less interesting than what you can do with the spirit. And um, I mean, I pulled my first Guinness pint when I was about 12 through my dad's encouragement. And that was about as interesting as it got to me. <laughs> so um, after the first Bloody Mary, then I expanded into pina coladas and realized actually this is, this is really fun. And of course I did what a lot of people do. And I fell in love with the super sugary, I would describe them as kind of like TGI Fridays cocktails where you go in, you get a sugar hangover and you get a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it began probably around 2014, 2013. And then from there, I, I expanded into bartending at, uh, at a resort and I bartended two resorts and then a nightclub and another restaurant and just helping with some cocktails on the restaurant menu as well. So it just kind of grew and I converted through the years from a, a whiskey lover to a gin lover to everything in between and figured out that you can play with just about anything. <laughs> oh, I, I think it starts off with the same process with, with a lot of things. You know, you, you fall in love with going along with the book. You know, you see a structure, you see, oh, okay, for example, you know, we look at we look at a Mai Tai, you've got to layer it, you've got to do this and then that part and add this and you've got to balance this. And it you you follow the rules and you're you're motivated to create the perfect by definition classic cocktail. And then it gets to the point where you get not bored, but you want to expand on it. And uh, that's kind of brought me to this point where I look at the rules I follow them partially and then I think well what if I do this and then <laughs> you end up with all kinds of weird things to be honest excellent no I just I think I'm just a proponent of creative process that's all <laughs> absolutely absolutely um so I think of uh, mixology a bit like sort of Harry Potter's potion school with Professor Snape you know thinking of a lot of different things <laughs> to go into your cocktails but how would you describe mixology to a novice like me? I would describe it as the second level in a department store that has like a secret collection range of clothing that you want to get into, but that there are people at the front of it who say, oh, I'm not sure if you can get in. And then the rest of us are like, let them in, come in, because it's not an exclusive club. It's um. It's kind of a, a place where I think so many people on Instagram, especially in the gin community, already have the foundations to, to do it. I think you know, going off the Harry Potter analogy, they're already there. You know, you're already at Hogwarts. It's right. got the foundational knowledge. So it's it's expanding into other spirits. Um, and or even you could just play with gin with the assortment and, and depth of, of gin cocktails out there. It's just a matter of going beyond the tonic pairings and just adding little bit, little bits and little bits until you you grow into a whole a whole picture, I suppose. Okay. But what, what sort of qualities do you think you need to have as you know, I mean, you must be looking out for sort of different flavors. How, how does how does mm -hmm. that kind of work? Well, a lot of times, especially with gin, with it being so so botanically inclined, um, I 
tend to research the gin that I'm using. And for example, in, in one place I worked that there was Monkey 47, which is one of my favorites. And so I learned about the history, I learned about the region, I learned about how they, you know, what they lend to their cocktails on their website and how other people have, however they've conducted themselves with it. And, you know, you look at the botanical profile and you kind of categorize as, you know, spicy, citrusy, fruity or crispy, piney, are there berries, is it floral? And from there you can either play off the botanicals or you can kind of partner them up okay. and expand a little bit. You know, people, some people are like, they look at a martini, you know, a classic martini, and they're like, oh, olive, olive juice, what does that have to do with a London dry gin? And there's, it complements what exists in the distillation process. And that's never explained. And I think that that's, that's just the key to unlock the door to mixology is, is understanding what's in there for you to expand on or pair with something else and and if you were sort of advising somebody how to kind of get started what what would you what what would be your sort of i don't know first drink that you might advise them to do i would say that it would depend on what they wanted to play with in terms of liquor type and okay. if they were likely that they're gin fans i'd imagine if they were listening to your podcast and <laughs> so hopefully i think a, a really hopefully a, yeah a really good um a really good cocktail to start with and something we've talked about too is is the clover club because it it is so beautiful it looks so elegant but it but it is so simple and of course you then have the blueprint to play off of it into variations you know, you can easily come up with, you know, a mango club if you wanted to, if you could find a gin that you could expand upon to incorporate mango, or maybe that's part of the process. So really just a lot of things that you can do with it that a lot of people don't really think about. Some people think it's sacrilegious, I suppose, to play with the classics, but once you've done it, you can vary it. You know, so I think Clover Club is a great place to start. And of course, as long as you have all the tools, it's a lot easier than it looks. Well, yeah, I was that was kind of my next question. What kind of tools do you need to sort of get started? Typically, they there are some good bar kits out there. I know Asda had a had a sale on and I hate to name drop, but um, they, they do have a good sale. And I personally have probably about four or five shaker tins because i'm not a huge fan of, of the classic style of the single tin and the lid and i don't really like that i got so used to having um one larger size and the smaller shaker tin combining and shaking that way that i can't really imagine using the smaller one right. i think what especially when you combine the two the larger and the smaller shaker tins you actually have more space to shake and especially when you're trying to make a nice foamy head on a cocktail using egg white you need as much space as you can for the impact right. um, to get to get that fluffy density. So I think it's important to get two shaker tins, a muddler. I like to get a conventional strainer and then I get a fine strainer if you're dealing with really upmarket cocktails and you want to ensure that it's completely clear 
right. um, in its complexion. And sorry, for, and for, for the novice in me, can you describe what a muddler is? Oh, it's it's just um, well, it's basically a pole uh, with at the end of it. It's got kind of a spiky head that, it, for example, in a mojito, you would uh, massage the mint, rip it up, drop it in the bottom of a shaker tin or a glass, depending on how you wanted to present it. And you would then use a muddler to to compress the mint and release some of its flavor um, into the rum, for example, in a mojito. Okay. And then you could, you know, later strain that out if you didn't want leaves in your cocktail. But it's a great way of um, expanding the flavor of that particular herb, if if you will, to to give it more voice in a cocktail. Like a mojito, you're really covering up the taste of the rum with with mint and soda. So okay, yeah. And and are you, are you, do you do you like to shake a cocktail or do you like to stir a cocktail or does it depend on the cocktail? It, it definitely uh, depends on the cocktail. I would say that I favor shaking um, more. It really depends because there, I mean, there are golden rules, for example, of if you've got a carbonated component in the drink, like tonic, you, you, you wouldn't shake it um, because obviously <laughs> it, it would come out super bubbly. You might get sprayed, um, which could be fun in the summertime, well, but yeah, uh, it's not really. <laughs> not great for a cocktail making so a lot of times I'll shake the the non-carbonated components um just to kind of enhance their pet like their their infusion and their partnership it's it's hard sometimes to get everything to talk together it's you know for example the densities in different alcohols they need to combine to give a certain color um like for example the the cool as a cucumber cocktail I did with the winter gin that was just almost bright teal green, teal greeny yeah. kind of color that had creme de menthe in it. And creme de menthe is a very dark shade of green, very dense. And you have to shake that because otherwise you're going to get a layered drink when you might not want it layered. You want the flavors combined. Of course. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so you can stir certain things and I like my whiskey. Stirred. One of my favorite uh, cocktails is a dry martini. And I, I was watching Ooh. a, I was watching a, I know it's a bit wrong really, because it's got very bad connotations, I think, but I do. And I'm a bit of a James <laughs> Bond fan on the side as well as Star Wars. So, um, but I was watching something the other day and it was saying you have to stir it. And I, I've never stirred a dry martini, you know, obviously maybe it's the James Bondness, but I was just wondering, would you stir a dry martini or would you, um, would you shake it? Oh, well, it's, I think it's a sensitive topic because. Well, it clearly is. Of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, well, it really depends on how much you enjoy the taste of, of the gin alone, because there are a lot of cocktail Puritans out there who regard shaking a martini as, as bruising the vermouth, <laughs> which right, okay. is um, an interesting way of describing things um in that instance it would for me depend on what what the person wanted going back to bartending experience it would very much if someone came up to me and wanted a specific martini or or a manhattan or these sorts of things i would definitely have to ask them um how they preferred it because everyone's different and, and i think that that's the beautiful side of 
of creating cocktails is everyone's different personally I'm I like certain drinks stirred and certain ones shaken but at the end of the day um I suppose they follow down the same path yeah yeah. it just tastes a bit different yeah absolutely okay well that was that that was very interesting so so describe sort of what your process would be you know if, if somebody said right okay I want you to to create a cocktail for my bar what what do you look for you know is it is it like a theme you're looking at or is it the gin you're looking at or available ingredients the season how, how does it all sort of play together well typically I would start with what they sell the most of um, where I've previously worked um, they've been big vodka um, selling bars so you know typically when people like vodka and it depends on the age range too I have to say before I get off on a tirade about um, <laughs> types of vodka and, and things along that line I, I like to know what they sell the most of what their demographic is and if this demographic pertains to any social group where you can make a play for a, a specific time of the year um, for example, within the LGBTQ plus community, we roll around pride. Can we make rainbow drinks that taste good? Can we um, make sure we're acknowledging every um, color of the rainbow, you know, including everyone in the spectrum? And that that plays a role in, of course, the reputation and how people perceive the restaurant. And um, so it starts off along that line and it, and it will expand into let's say they sell a lot of gin well where is the gin distilled what is distilled in the gin how does it come across to the average person what is the description on the website what do I smell what do I taste and then from there you you basically create based on what the gin contains and then you expand on it or or pair it with something slightly unique yeah, you're certainly very good at pairing it with something slight, slightly unique. <laughs> Some of the things well, you come up like with. A... So where does that come from? Where do you, you know, I, I know because I know I saw on a post the other day, you said you were foraging for various things. So I just wondering, do you know, do you, do you go out into the woods and find find stuff to go into the, the cocktails or where, where, where do you, you know, where do you get your inspiration for finding sort of the ingredients that might go with the gin? Or, or other spirit well i think <laughs> i do like the idea of of myself in the forest with a, a little little bag like a little brown bag sifting for for herbs and botanicals and whatnot uh, <laughs> but it, find a few mushrooms that. or something like that you know just oh, I'll put those <laughs> exactly um unfortunately it's not that that creative um you know in field but when it comes to um coming up with them I I think I I usually just sit down and and think about the cocktail where it was made and how I can make it stand out because I think that there are some obvious creations out there and um, I've never really liked to be predictable (laughs) and I've never really Uh, liked really you don't say that yeah how funny that (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I, I have to do something that I feel like um, it might be obvious, like I felt like the the Winterbacher Wonderland combination was was something that was almost like just a natural 
a natural creation but thinking back it took me a while to consider the possibility of infusing um, apple and cinnamon in a syrup but I had to do so many syrups where I've worked before I had to batch them so I, I knew how to make them oh, so, so you of... actually you actually produced the apple and cinnamon syrup that went in there yeah yeah oh, simple, I hadn't realized that because I, I knew you simple. said it was homemade I just assumed that it was somewhere near near to where that was and um uh, oh, I wish it was. Oh, okay. I wish it was because it would be more authentic in, in some respects. It would speak more to the region. But no, I, I had to batch so many syrups across my um my time working in bars that I know how to do it. I've got the recipe down. It's really simple as well, actually. Uh, and you just you just make sure it boils and sits for a good amount of time and and then in it goes. But but where where do you kind of get that sort of inspiration from? Are you sort of looking out all the time for different flavors or? Because I, I know, what, for example, when I, you know, just being very simplistic, if I'm tasting a new gin, I tend to always base it with Mediterranean tonic just so I've got a, you know, sort of a benchmark and, and I happen to like Mediterranean tonic as well, which, which helps. Mm. But I would, I would always sort of taste the, the, um, the gin sort of neat first of all and then decide kind of on my tonic obviously if I'm if I'm testing it I, I, or tasting it I would tend to um, you know just use the same thing because then I think you've got a you know a, a sort of level playing field but I might sort of say oh actually that would work well with an elderflower if it's something like an offia gin or something I never know how to pronounce that so I'm, I'm probably wrong but where which is really really spicy for me it's a bit too spicy so i would probably try and dumb that down with i don't know some uh, blood orange tonic or something like that um but how how do you kind of uh you know you you're you're so you, you've got the 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 gin or the vodka or whatever it is but how do you sort of taste it and then go oh okay i think that would work with you know, where does that sort of inspiration come from well, I think it, it does come from the the distillation process, um, okay. especially with gin. Right. Um, very different from vodka, where you know I have more of an inclination to play to the classics because, especially if it's just specific, you know, for for example, Belvedere. You know, there's a lot you can do with it. Right. But um, you know, you are more constrained to the classics, whereas gin, when you have, you know, for example eight plus botanicals in, in the process of distillation you are able to take it a multitude of different ways especially if the botanicals fall within the same category so if you're looking at like a fresh lemon peel and a fresh orange peel you know of course they have different flavors to them but I would put them in a citrus category and then I would consider across the board of liquors what cocktail I can think of that would pair well with it what color do i think would be fun right um and what would enable this part of the gin to talk more you know that's really what you're trying to lend it to and, and specifically with gin you don't want to hide it with you know fruit juices it's not like rum you can't just <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you can't just lump sugar on it and, and you know like i hate to reference tgi Fridays again but you know you can't just hide it with an array of sugar um you it would be a disservice to the gin completely yeah no absolutely so, 
Okay, so so really, you're you know you're looking first of all at sort of um, you know in the case of a bar, kind of what they sell the most first of all. Then you're looking sort of age range, demographics, that kind of thing. If there's a particular mm-hmm. you know sort of time of the year, and you, obviously, um, you know that that then um, it sort of influences maybe what you what you might want to do, um, and then you're utilizing your sort of taste buds as it were with regard to say in in the example of gin where effectively you're you're taking those um you know what you've tasted in the distillation process and then you're working out from there what you think it would work with based on sort of knowledge of some other cocktails in order to then get to the point where you're ready to actually start building your cocktail yeah uh, pretty much i mean i think that the beauty of gin is is that the botanicals can tell you some degree what what they like or what part of them you want to talk more to I think especially when you look at I fear I can't I don't know if I say it properly either I look at at spice gins and I think oh what a fun opportunity to 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 play with you know for example tomato um or I, I never would have thought of putting a tomato with it well, you wouldn't want too much because, but, you know, on my taste profile, tomato was quite overpowering. But, you know, it's it would be a fun opportunity to see what you could do with, with gin in, for example, uh, like a distant cousin of a Bloody Mary, spicy. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, what wow. could you do? Like, there are so many liquors, for example, like Ancho Reyes Verde have a Poblano liquor. And it's spicy and it could be like a, a secondary alcohol in a modified um, gin martini with maybe some tomato extract, maybe some coriander to kind of balance out the tomato and maybe some sugar along the way to just take away some of that punch that tomato gives you because it does tend to hit you in the face. That's why people like Bloody Marys on a golf course in the early morning. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, there are a lot of different ways to, to go. And I actually have been wanting to play with Sip Smith's um chili i think it's chili and lime oh okay i'm wanting to play with that a little bit but i haven't got around to doing it um but these kinds of gins are really fun because you you almost have it right in front of you uh, like that the raspberry and vanilla gin that you've talked about too there's so much you can do with that that's completely off the beaten track um I mean, yeah that, that's just amazing the depth of raspberry you get there i've never tasted that in a spirit before it was just you know, if I compare it to sort of my Whitley Neal raspberry that I've I've got, you know, it, it does taste of raspberries. You know, you taste some other cheaper raspberry gins and they don't really taste of raspberries. They're just sort of a red liquid that sort of vaguely represents raspberries. <laughs> Whereas Whitley yeah, Neal really ta- tastes of raspberries, but yeah, pit wheel. I know what you mean. It's, it's a novelty when you actually have a gin that, because I think sometimes, and, and this is the big part of like, I know you do too. You care a lot about the lesser known distilleries. Um, it's it's why I don't like to give a huge amount of space to certain brands because I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if you're honoring the process or if you're cutting corners. And, you know, I don't just want a color, you know. So I think uh, that's why when I, when I heard you talk about the raspberry and vanilla gin, I was like, there's my inner child, you know, in a sweet shop was just like, oh, 
else could I do with that? So, oh yeah, you've sold me on that one. To be my my, my worry is now though, is I think my whole sort of taste profile is going to change and suddenly my gin shelf is going to, you know, what it is now is suddenly going to completely change and there'll be all these sort of lesser known distilleries on there that people are going, where on earth did you find that? It's just like, oh, well, I, sort of <laughs> I tried it one day and I, I really liked it and it was... Uh, it was amazing. How did you hear about this? Well, you need to listen to my podcast and uh, you'll find all of it. Well, of see, it. that's a good way of giving yourself a subtle shout out. I know. I, th- <laughs> I thought it was as well. So I thought, oh, I'll go for that. I'll, I'll try and be subtle well, about it. But clearly I wasn't about as subtle as a brick, I think. But there you go. <laughs> you could just pull out your business card and be like, wow, if you yeah, watch exactly. episode, maybe, <laughs> maybe I should do that. Five, five minutes in, 17 seconds after. That's where I start talking about. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't want to talk about it too much because, you know, this is this is all about uh, mixology and all about you. So, uh, you know, I must must get back on topic. Um, <laughs> so I'm very interested because um, this sort of came up and we were talking just before we started uh, this this call about um, tasting gin. And I know there's sort of a little bit of uh, rumblings about how you should taste gin. And I've always believed that you should definitely taste it neat before you decide what to pair it with. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I would. Um, well, firstly, I, I sniff it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Perhaps in, in a really random way. But yeah, initially, I'll always sniff the, sniff the product and have a little think based on you know hopefully I have a list in front of me written down of what I felt like the key standout botanicals were okay and make sure I can acknowledge a few of them and cut maybe maybe at, at, by this point usually there's a couple of them you've spoken more loudly to me or okay. I've picked up on more of and then I'll pour it in a in a perhaps a shot glass but I won't shoot it I'll I'll slowly sip it and ponder on it and it's harder with the botanically heavy gin um, because, I mean, as you know, you, you sniff it and you're like, Ooh, who comes first? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that there's this um, unfortunate theme in the mixology world where people want to, to be kind of purist about how you sample things. They want to maybe convert it into, into wine and um perhaps brandy or whiskey or scotch whereas i think that the beauty of gin and, and is something that i've talked about with some, some of my gin friends is is that you each person may pick up on a botanical more than the next person so i think the beauty is trying it neat if you can if you can handle it yeah i mean i think it you know it can be quite difficult for for some people to to do that but i definitely think you know if you're going to pair it or put it in you know a cocktail or something you need to know what the base sort of flavor tastes like absolutely okay so so recently you've done some work with uh the uh, a german bar called manhattan cocktails and obviously you've got mm-hmm. um stonewall coming up i don't know how much you can tell us about the sort of stonewall stuff you know you might want to keep it under wraps but how how do those sort of collaborations come about well I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit before we we started today. It's staying open to the brands that you think kind of kind of align with what you're what you're going for. Stay 
stay tuned to who is in the market you interact with them and and quite often I think that as some people were talking about it in the gym community yesterday is you know some people will message companies and be like hey I want to work with you and some people will wait for them to contact them and I think it's so important to before anything happens and let's say a, a distillery starts following you 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 want to really read up on them and, and understand what they're about and, and interact with them because again you're helping a distillery in a way it doesn't necessarily facilitate anything further but where with Manhattan cocktails it all happened quite organically um, we okay. interacted and over time um, they reached out to me and ever since then it's it's been a great partnership I've really enjoyed being involved with them and their gin is dropping later this year and I think that they understand how important it is to just let people play with the product prior to launch because not only are they getting content they're also getting you know a little bit more exposure and attention than they might get if they kept it under wraps so and Stonewall was something where we we interacted and I actually reached out to them because I'd been wanting to do I'd been wanting to partner with a gin company that was you know hitting home with me as far as LGBTQ plus support goes so we interacted and then it came about that way and I'm really excited about what's to come with Virgin it's going to be really fun it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be eccentric I'll, I'll say that much there are going to be a lot of colors and there might be ice cream involved who knows <laughs> yeah I know I know you were talking about rainbows and stuff like that uh, certainly it, it, on your post you were so you know because there's lots of rainbows on there which is really good and and really uh, positive i think for the lgbtq plus sort of um whole community to sort of be able to you know showcase you know um their their views on the world um i think that's really important um especially you know to to everybody so they really understand um a bit more i think that's what the world needs to do a lot of the time just understand um that people are different and um that everybody needs to tolerate people for their views whether or not they believe their views or not it's really important to understand those views and 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 kind of um really allow people to sort of show to showcase that because i think if if we don't and we don't understand what other people believe and we just you know, blankets say, no, we're not going to think about that. I just think it's, um, it's really sad for the world. And I think if COVID has sort of taught us anything, it is to really understand kind of what other people are feeling and, and, you know, want to be bring forward. And I think it's really nice the way you're doing it in a really sort of fun way as well, which I think is really important. Um, Sorry, there's my, there's, there's my little rant about, People should understand <laughs> other people, but uh. no, I like it. I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think with everything that's happened recently, there there has been more awareness and light given to um, groups and movements that really need it. I think something that was so hard for me, um, when coming to terms with um, my sexual orientation, was how people would respond. I was very very nervous, and I felt especially when I was golfing, I felt um, 
I felt very conflicted because obviously, you know, sponsors and, and people would rather you not share that. They want you to be marketable. They, they don't want you to tarnish your image, so to speak. And for me, it, it was, it took me quite some time to, I mean, I think I touched on it in the Stonewall post. It took, it took me being in Hillcrest by such a really inclusive and accepting community to feel like, you know, I have a platform and I think that, you know, I'm, I might not be the most outspoken person, but I'll always encourage acceptance and to some degree, I think that that's, that's natural to all of us. I think when people meet someone, they, they know someone and this person stands up and says, actually, you know what, I fall in the spectrum. It, it gives them an opportunity to say, I know this person this person's a good person it doesn't change who they are it's part of who they are and it's a beautiful part of who they are and then it, it that will continue on in a chain of events and hopefully we can kind of move towards a world where people are a bit more open-minded and accepting and on a deeper level um, than what we've seen in history and we've seen it's improved so there's there's a lot of hope I think yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, for me, I think it's simplistic, you know, in some ways, um, you know, from the perspective of I would like to be in a, sorry, I, I don't mean the issue is simplistic. I mean, from, from the, from the perspective of, I think it's, um, I, I would like to be in a world where somebody says, there's Vanessa, there's Ben. Mm. It doesn't really matter what they believe or who they are we just accept them for who they are and i know yeah, i know I, that's I that that's a you know we've got a long way to go um but you know i really really hope that one day we kind of get to that point where you know we can just accept people for what they are because you know you sort of see so many people that they 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 sort of talk to somebody and they're all nice to them and then suddenly they'll mention something and then suddenly you'll see this sort of step change of non-acceptance because they've said something that offends that person because, you know, for whatever reason, they don't believe that a, another person should do what they're doing. And I just think that's really sad. Mm, you know, yeah, when, I, I do too. I it's about open communication now it's about being able to and and I hate to say use the term uncomfortable because I think that that's subjective to each person but being in a situation where maybe you, you aren't aware of for example um, the struggles within the trans community which you know they've had to deal with a huge huge amount and you know it's very easy to judge on face value but you sit down and you you have conversations with these people that that this person might find uncomfortable but they have to sit with it and work through it and and understand that seeing seeing the experience through someone else's eyes and maybe feeling their pain in, in an empathetic way help kind of convert from that single-mindedness to open-mindedness and then say okay well I know this person. they identify as this and and they're a wonderful human being and and that's it. I think that's that's full circle back to what you said. It's about human beings. It's not about how we identify. And I think that's that is the next step. Yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, I appreciate there's a long way to go. The one thing I have found though is 
certainly for me on the on the Instagram sort of gin community, everybody seems to accept everybody for what they are. It doesn't seem to matter as long as you love gin, you sort of seem to be accepted, which I think is kind of a step in the right direction. I appreciate that there is a yeah, long, long way the, to go. The, yeah, the community has been incredible for me. Like I, I had messages on that and comments on that post that I really didn't expect to have. I just, you know, it's it's. Um, I think it's really wonderful how how kind people have been, and I knew it would be a weird transition for me from going to going from mostly fitness and and previous to that golf to mixology. And some people who know me know how much I've been wanting to do this for, for especially like the last year, but I have not pulled the trigger. And, and recently, I've just taken the plunge and, and you, really... you, cer- you certainly have I mean I've seen some of the comments on there and they're amazing and you know I, I saw one one comment that you I think you put in a post and you sort of said I didn't really realize that I could share some recipes online and you'd got so many sort of comments going oh this is amazing can you share some more yeah <laughs> yeah I didn't know that it, it would be a thing and you know for example uh you know with with the covid situation we're all working on a budget it's not like you know i could buy boatloads of you know brand name things and create the masses of things that i could create in a bar so i'm i'm working with like so many people what you can work with and so i i always had kind of a fear that i would maybe butt heads with a bit more of like a a purist in terms of the, the mixology cocktail world and, and they might question my choices but I felt like actually it's been more of an acceptance of, of everyone's individual creativity which is which is great well you know I think you know as you know and as I put on that last post you did you are an inspirational person and you wrote an inspiring post and I think that's a really good way to sort of bring to a close to a certain to a certain degree, uh, sort of our conversation. But how can people get in touch with you if they want to sort of understand your knowledge of um, cocktails and if they want to get in touch with you about, I don't know, LGBTQ+, all those kind of things, obviously the, the, the Hibs Lupus Trust as well. How, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? It would just be to to drop me a message, honestly. I, you know, uh, on Instagram, I use it perhaps more than I should, considering (laughs) I'm studying most of the time. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm a message away. I I like to feel like I'm, or I like to believe maybe that I'm an approachable person. You know, I can answer any questions and I'm also really open to learning and and connecting and and having my, my mind open too so okay and one last thing before you go it's something a question i always like to ask on the podcast um so i hope you've got your thinking cap on um what (laughs) is your favorite gin and what would you serve it with well there's a side of my brain that wanted to separate favorites into categories and be a real pain in the neck (laughs) Um, but I think my all-time favorite gin is going to be a bit. I don't. I don't actually know if that's controversial. Um, but Agnes Arbor, um, their basically their rhubarb gin to me is just something that I 
I can have a field day with that. That's yeah. I would, and honestly, I would be really weird right now and pair it, <laughs> pair it in a martini with. Let's see, I would probably pair it with just a dash of apérol. Oh wow! Because I like this too. So, so how do, how do you how do you how do you spell the the Misaba gin? It's Agnes Arbor, A G N E S A R B E R. Maybe I'm oh, mispronouncing okay. it. No, no, no. That sounds that sounds fine. I just haven't I haven't heard of it. it it's so interesting doing these um, episodes because so many people come up with so many different gins. My only problem is I'm probably going to be a poor person because I'm going to be going out to try and get all these gins. But yeah, it's um, it's a, it's. Oh, it's beautiful. It, the bottle itself is is amazing too. If you if you were to Google it, you'd probably be like, "Oh my god, it looks like a work of art." Um, so I I do have to give them props because not only am I sold on their branding, I'm sold on the the botanicals they used. <laughs> and and lastly, what does gin mean to you? I would say as a person who's not very good at drawing or art generally. <laughs> But to me to me it is a huge creative outlet it's and it's something that I don't find stressful and there have been parts of my life where creating cocktails have been stressful um or have it has been suppressed depending on where I've worked and what I've done um so I just kind of enjoy the the creative process so I would say gin for me is is a massive creative outlet and it's it's become kind of a blessing as well in terms of who it's connected me with and how it's kind of broadened um my mind on a lot of levels so yeah well i have to say that's a pretty impressive answer for a very very impressive person uh, i will always Thanks, be ben. in awe of your your posts and uh the way sort of you you conduct yourself online i think it's it's fabulous i can't say enough about you really from that perspective um i know i'm a long way off having the the sort of knowledge you have in the mixology but you've certainly shown me sort of how perhaps i can get started and uh I, I, the good thing for me is i have a lot of the kit already but i just maybe yeah. haven't uh haven't had the uh the confidence perhaps to to use it but i really feel as though i can so thank you very much for coming on the show today no no problem thank you for having me and uh, please try and if you need any help message me but i'm pretty sure you know more than you think you know <laughs> i'd just like to say a big thank you again to vanessa for coming on the show it was a really inspiring talk and uh, i really got some really good tools and techniques i think i can take forward with regard to sort of mixology so looking forward to putting those into practice i'd like to give a quick shout out to worthing gin who were on the beach trying to get people interested in their new flavor orange blush so i hope that all went well i've got two other things that i'd like to say to small distilleries from a customer perspective and i think they're really important things that will really help you kind of move forward so if i may be so bold i think it's really useful to and i've said this before to have miniatures on your site so people can essentially choose those particularly if you haven't got the reach that some of the other gin companies have you know being in supermarkets effectively then people can go and 
try your different products, work out which is the best one for them, and then come back and buy a full bottle. The other thing is I think you really need to think about your customer experience and when they unpack the gin. Um, I've had a really positive uh, customer experience this week from the Edge Gin. I've already posted about it, but it was absolutely amazing. I got a handwritten note to me from Claire and Mike, and it was really, really, it really touched touched me, and I thought it was a really good way of um, sort of cementing that that sort of customer experience. Also, Claire got in touch with me before my order was sent out and said, oh, I'm also including pear gin. And I've got to say, I've tasted the pear gin and it's very, very nice. I'm not, not normally a fan of pear, but it is absolutely fantastic. There will be a post, or will have, which should have already come out by the time this is recorded on that. But those two things were really, really positive. And, and before I had even tasted the gin... So really think about your your customer experience and sort of ta- tailoring that as much as you can because you're able to do that. You know, bigger companies just can't do that and it's going to make you stand out. My shout out to Instagram this week is to Jamie and Jin. I really love her posts. They're so detailed, so inspiring. The way she presents what she's talking about is, is really, really good clever for example she had a lovely post with a picnic basket and then another post with the pit wheel uh, raspberry gin and sort of some summer fruits and some sort of tonic and then she had sort of little berries sort of around it was just really nice the thing i also like is her sense of color is really really amazing and the lighting is always really really good if you haven't checked them out it really is worth it so at jamie and gin i'll leave a note in the show notes um so you can um go to that but it's always it is really worth going over there and just getting some inspiration if you like to post i would love to hear from you you can get in touch with me at gin ignite either on instagram or twitter you can also get in touch with me via email gin.gossip at ginignite.com the thing i like about the gin community that i've met so far is nobody judges anybody for what they believe, what they look like, or who they choose to be. The world would be a better place if everybody took that view. Grab your drink, toast to those you love, enjoy your weekend, and whether you decide to party or stay in, I will be with you in spirit. Seriously though, enjoy your weekend, and I look forward to joining you for another episode next Friday. Cheers.